The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Do you wish for a more fulfilling, erotic, and sexual life? The journey begins here. This is The Sexual Voice with your host, Jessica Ford. As a relationship psychotherapist working with individuals and couples for decades, Jessica knows how to create and support meaningful relationships. Along with her guests, Jessica expands the lens of sex therapy, connecting you with a more satisfying and healthier sexual self. Now, here is Jessica Ford. Hello and welcome to The Sexual Voice. Uh, Today um, we have a very full show, nothing unusual, Um, but to set the stage for this episode, Culture, Race and Sex, and at the end a very brief look back at the uh, last four episodes that we've had, um, I'm going to say when we think about our sexual voice, do you ever wonder what influence is kind of contribute to that? Uh, is it a component of uh, understanding what society has had to say? And when I was kind of preparing for the show, uh, there was a professor of anthropology. And for those who already know a little bit about me, I have a master's in cultural anthropology, and so I'm kind of always drawn to these anthropology types. Uh, Basically, what he wrote was, there is no neurological or physiological patterning patterning that distinguishes races from one to another. As for gender, our biology has extensive similarities as well. Uh, Our hormone systems function the same way. Uh, Basically, there is no specific male or female hormones. The only importance is there's a strong variation in the hormone levels and patterns. Our brains are the same. So when we're looking at how culture influences or even this idea of race, it kind of has led me to again, consider the role that you know, society plays and how it controls and shapes our sexuality and our view on gender and race. So, and I kind of see this as uh, looking at these various myths that we've heard and the fears that get created. And also it's sometimes from this, as I call it, this vantage point of privilege that society and culture determines how we think and think about ourselves and others. And I kind of was wondering what the world would look like if there was just this concept of male and female, the biological component, and if there was no race or gender or labels. And I'm even going to say a strong phrase here, or orientations, just the acceptance of our biological selves and its endless possibilities without labeling it. So as we engage in this conversation today, I'm 
really privileged to have uh, Dr. Herbert Samuels join us and had the fortune of, good fortune of hearing him speak at a conference in Boston a number of years ago. He is the president of the Foundation for the Scientific Study of Sexuality. He's a professor of human sexuality uh, with the university system in New York. And uh, he has been involved in the field of sex, sex, sexuality, I can't speak today, for more than 30 years as a sexuality educator. He focuses on sexual behavior and attitudes of African-American men and women. And he's done a lot of work with the Sinclair, um, yeah, I really can't talk today, Sinclair Intimacy Institute, um, and has participated in making several sex education videos, one of which I have in my bookshelf, uh, the Better Sex video series for black couples. So, Dr. Samuels, you're here with us, and thank you so much for taking part in today's episode. And I really want to tell you it is a pleasure having you join me in this discussion. And thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to having a lovely discussion with you today. Thanks so much. Uh, so, I'm going to lead out with my first question. These concepts or how society has kind of created all of these labels and, and kind of made these determinations and focusing so much on our differences as opposed to the potential similarities, what is still perpetuating this uh, concept of differences in your mind? Uh, well, I liked your opening statement when you were talking about influences, you know, is it race or is it culture or is it gender? Uh, in my view, it's all those. It's race, it's culture, and gender. And the uh, underlying concept of that is sexism, racism, and sort of a cultural ethnocentrism, where we assume that the culture that we belong to sets the standard from any other. And within certain subcultures, as you mentioned, sort of the point of privilege as you were doing the introduction, uh, society plays a great role in determining uh, what's right or wrong in, uh, in certain you know, groups of people with that. Uh, and I guess the, the, the bottom line of that is, is how much difference that we can make, and particularly with the concept of race, that's more of a cultural idea than a fixed biological idea. Uh, with, I tell my students, if we're talking about race, we're talking about the human race, and that to be black or white or others, it's more of, it's not within our DNA per se, it's how culture determines uh, who we are going to be. And if I can say a personal example, some of you may have, have heard about Ancestry.com. Okay. Uh, I, had my DNA, I had my DNA done, uh, uh, I guess, last year. And I was expecting, obviously, to have some African uh, blood, which obviously I did. But what was surprising to me was that I, according to my DNA analysis, uh, almost a third of my DNA is Scandinavian. I'm 2% Irish, and I'm 2% Eastern European Jew. So how <laughs> should I identify myself? Shalom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So, uh, no, I do find that intriguing, but also uh, I, I think that's just the reality uh, and a very similar thing with Ancestry.com. I, uh, the word mulatto, which uh, you don't see too often on people's birth certificates anymore, uh, appeared on uh, a, a relative's birth certificate. So I really, uh, I, you know, it, it, it's... Yes, we, and, and that's, I guess, the point is this idea of we're just male and female um, with maybe variations in that. But, but the idea that this race and gender is a construct that society has kind of put on us and to look at us as human beings. But then we continually have these, these differences, uh, you know, focused on, you know, and, I, you know, I... I and, and I am going to take this in a bit of a political direction because it needs to be. Um, I, I do provide a lot of uh, clinical service to uh, African Americans, and uh, I'm really pleased because number one, I think trust is a big issue, and oh, it's, and so to feel that I'm trusted uh, is a compliment. But it, I do take it quite seriously as a privilege and an honor. And um, but in conversations, the even as we look now at the difficulties um, that are so many police departments are having, and we realize that they're you know not perfect, and these are people that are hired to do a job, maybe without proper screening, and uh, and maybe don't even have the adequate support that they require in order to do their jobs from a kind of administrative perspective. But, mm-hmm. you know, the tragedies that are occurring over and over again. But, you know, when you gave your presentation in Boston, uh, kind of took, you know, talking about uh, how black sexuality is perceived, I mean, you addressed, I think, one of your pictures that still is kind of, in my mind, was of a black man being hung, you know, because he looked right. at a white woman, you know, and the absurdities that go with that. So, you know, people are shocked, I think, at what's happening with, you know, police forces and everything. But the reality is this has been something that has been going on in black communities for a very long time and oh, decades, long time. centuries. Uh, and again, it's, it's not really surprising to me to see that. Uh, and if you look at I mean, just go back a hundred years, and if you're looking at how the police have been dealing recently with, the, with as we know what's going on, the killing of a lot of some unarmed black men, and if the in 1890 in New Orleans there was an article in a journal called the the New Orleans Police Gazette, and in that. It was geared towards police officers there. And they warned them that if you happen to run across a black man who's high on cocaine and he comes at you, and if you pull out your standard 32 caliber revolver and shoot him, unless you hit him in the head or the heart, he, that won't stop him. He'll keep coming at you. And the recommendation was that you should change from a 32 to a 38 caliber because that is likely to give him more, uh, you know, would stop him in his tracks. And the second part of that was the black man under the influence of cocaine because of his primitive brain 
would go out and rape white women. Yes, yeah, I, I actually uh, have heard this, and I'm I'm always intrigued when you look, you know, and and read any kind of, and I said from kind of a cultural anthropologic, you know, anthropologic, and I am struggling with speech here, but the idea that uh, people have you know, studied black brains to determine they really must be different and have never found. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's it, yeah. the absurdity of it. But, but here well, we are in the 20th century. Yes, but the 21st century, and here we still, you know, have this, you know, these, when I talk about fears and myths that mm-hmm. who black people are or here, you know, even other races, I mean, and I don't even like to use the word race anymore, but when we define other people as other, period, I, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's so limiting. And I guess I, I can maybe move to ask you, how can we change these myths of black sexuality? And that's an excellent question, and I'm not sure if we can change them. I think we can make them to where it's not a, a big deal, and it's not going to define who black men or black women are. Uh, and if you look, again, over the past decades, these myths resurface often in times of economic distress. And almost you know, every sort of either recession or depression that we've had, you've had majority groups looking at primarily minority males and linking them with crime, with drugs, and a reason why I don't have a job is because you're taking my job away. And that sounds you know, very familiar with, uh, with the political climate today with that. So trying to get rid of these myths uh, I think it's going to be difficult to do, but what I do see over time, these myths taking, you know, being less significant and just sort of, uh, you know, not having the same, uh, you know, fear mongering that they did, you know, at some time ago. So I think incrementally, uh, these myths are just going to, you know, die on their own with that. Well, I, I would hope so, and, you know, again, I'm, I'm waxing a bit political. You know, we have, you know, a, we have Trump who is running a, but he, he, he is engaging in these myths and perpetuating them, and that's my greatest fear, is that he is connecting with people who who want to hold on to these thoughts. I mean, without any, when you talk about uh you know, pseudoscience, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's no reality. Nothing is based in reality. So it's this, you know, kind of uh, engaging people at their most desperate level and, mm-hmm. uh, and inciting, I mean, that's the word that comes to my mind, inciting, sure. uh, mm-hmm. you know, these fears. So I, I'm uh, spending the month of October trying to do my best to help Hillary. But um, I think, you know, I, I, this, the idea of, of debunking myths, you know, we can write about it, we can express it. And yes, I agree, when economic times are hard, it's much more challenging for people, I think, because someone has to be to blame for it. It can't be them. We have to have a scapegoat, yes. Yeah. So, 
I'm going to take it a little bit further, and I know, and, and I've, this Better Sex video series, um, mm-hmm. what was the difference in the black couple? Because I've really, and, and, and it's very defined for people who don't know this Better Sex video series. They have one for heterosexuals, homosexuals, and then the black couple. So I, I'm trying to understand that difference. It would have been interesting to have maybe combined them. But anyway, so w- w- what led you to do that? Uh, I guess when I was uh, making it, I was asked to you know, look at the Sinclair catalog. And what was glaring, there was really nothing in there that uh, remotely related to African-Americans per se, other than just the general sex education videos they had. And sure. most of those videos had, uh, you know, white people in them. And uh, for some African-Americans, they'd like to see themselves uh, in something rather than, you know, seeing some whites. So I when got I it. did that, so when I did the, the series, in terms of the actual behavior that you'll see demonstrated, uh, we're really not talking about anything that's different than what anyone else would do. Uh, of course. I mean, there's nothing <laughs> exotic. Where, you, mm-hmm. you know, black people aren't hanging off the ceiling engaging in sex. You know, they have sex the same way that every, Darn. You know, everybody else does. <laughs> yeah. But the primary difference is the commentary behind it. And sure. some of the reasons why certain attitudes developed you know, from the way, and particularly black women, were handled in slavery. Uh, where you pretty much had no say over what was going to happen to you. And that sort of developed into more of a conservative attitude towards sex and sexuality. Uh, as, but as time goes on, uh, you know, it, 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 I don't want to say loosens up per se, but, but you put it in a different perspective. And you're more concerned about you getting the most out of your sexual life rather than being burdened by a past uh, that didn't value you uh, as a as a woman like that. And likewise with, with men, uh, black men historically were seen to be animalistic. Uh, the only thing they wanted was just to have sex with whomever that was around. And, and I think if you buy into that myth and stereotype, that changes the way that you view women as just an object for your desire. And I think over time, that has changed somewhat uh, with men, black men in particular, you know, not necessarily thinking they have to have sex with everybody they see. So it's really, I figured there was a much deeper story here, and I'm glad that I've asked this question, because it really is of benefit. And I think in a, in a world where people certainly are marginalized and made to feel, you know, and definitely in many cases a minority, you know, it's meaningful to know that, you know, it's, you're right, when you are looking at the pictures, when you're looking at this video, that this is, uh, you know, that is representative of who you are. Just mainstream sexual behavior that most people engage in, you know, more yeah. or less. And yeah. Again, it's just the, it's just a matter of your preferences, what you like, what you don't like. Is there any more to this discussion? That uh, in my little limited questions, and 
everyone I speak with, I've been so blessed with this show to have really some extraordinary people like yourself. And I, you know, could talk for hours, I'm sure. But is there anything that you really want to let people know about this really important topic? Well, I, th- I think one of the issues is that often we are so isolated from one another that we live in our own little world, our own little neighborhood, and everybody we see is like us. And I think if we're going to make any significant changes, whether it be in myths about black men and women or, or gender stereotypes and sexism, we're going to have to get perhaps out of our comfort zone and be uh, you know, more open to discussion and real discussion uh, and not wait for some tragedy to happen and then everyone gets upset, wants to do something about it, and then the next day it's forgotten. So I think we need to, to again, get out of our isolationist mode and we need to you know, be around people who are, are different than us and perhaps people who have different opinions than us. And unless that happens, I think, again, that when, when the economy is good, nobody cares what you do. If the economy is bad, we've got to look around and look for the boogeyman. Mm-hmm. And often the boogeyman are minorities who are, quote, taking our jobs, immigrants who are coming over, taking our jobs, and... Uh, and I'm not sure if that's just human nature or something that can actually change as time goes by. I hope it can change. And the comment from one of my uh, African-American clients was you know, that white people need to be more, you know, participating more in this topic of Black Lives Matter. And oh, it's, it's not occurring as well as it should, so it's another thing that we need to consider. Is there anything that you've got coming up or you're going to be doing that you want to share with the, with our listeners? Uh, well, in November, uh, the Society for the Scientific Study of Sexuality is having their annual meeting. Uh, as the president of the foundation, which is sort of the, I guess, we're the, the money-raising arm of the society, we are having a lovely event where you know one can go, and we're having basically about the differences of the body, and so we're having uh, contortionists, pole dancers, both men and women, uh, you know, people who are you know using their body, not necessarily in a sexual way, but in a sensual way, and so that would be part of our annual event. And those of you who might be coming to Phoenix in November, I look forward to seeing you. Well, thank you. I will make sure that uh, that information gets put on uh, the social media. And I have sent the information about the show today to you. And please share it with your contacts and on your social media. And uh, because people can listen as they are maybe live today or uh, on demand uh, in the future. Matter of fact, it stays in archives, I think, forever. So I'm not sure when they get rid of it, but uh, the show can be listened to. But thank you, Dr. Samuels, for joining uh, me and the show today. And I so appreciate your input and all the work you do. It's been my pleasure, and thank you for having me. Thank you. 
And we're out for break. Uh, Michael's been eagerly, eagerly waiting to take us to break, so please take us away, Michael. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to The Sexual Voice with Jessica Ford. To reach our show today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to the sexual voice at jafordgroup.com. Now, back to the sexual voice. Welcome back, and I'm Jessica Ford. We're going to continue our discussion around culture, race, and sex, and I'm delighted to have Dr. Catherine Hall with me. This interview with Catherine was pre-recorded in August since she was unable to speak live on today's episode. Uh, Dr. Hall received her PhD in clinical psychology from McGill University in Montreal, Quebec, and completed advanced training uh, in marital and sexual therapy at Allen Memorial Institute Institute in Montreal. Since 1988, she has worked with individuals and couples in the treatment of sexual dysfunction in her private practice in Princeton, New Jersey. Her award-winning book, Reclaiming Your Sexual Self, uh, and she is also uh, is available at Amazon, and she is also the co-editor of Principles and Practice of Sex Therapy and the Cultural Context of Sexual Pre- Pleasure and Problems, uh, which is also available on Amazon. So thank you so much, Catherine, for taking the time to record this interview and looking forward to talking with you. Thanks, Jessica. Um, so I... I came to this issue about, you know, working with other cultures for a couple of reasons. One is that, you know, uh, people from different cultures, they have a hard time accessing mental health care. They, they don't normally, you know, they don't come to see therapists as easily as uh, we do now in the Western world. 
And also because, you know, we as therapists aren't very good at it. Um, people from other cultures tend to leave therapy, drop out of therapy, um, you know, uh, more quickly. And, and that made me feel... Um, you know, really unhappy about myself as a therapist and about the services that I was providing. I think I put a vignette in that in the book or, or in one of the chapters. It was about, you know, the time that a, a, um, a Chinese man came to see me referred from an infertility clinic because he would not give them uh, or did not give them a sample, a semen sample. They were asking for a semen sample, and he was unable to provide that. So they sent him to see me, and I think he had no idea why he was coming to see a psychologist um, because of this difficulty in um, ejaculating into a cup. And I think he, he didn't know why he was there, and I was having a really difficult time sort of talking with him about, you know, his sexuality. And he just kind of looked at me really blankly, and I just felt so helpless to, um, you know, deal with him that I thought, I really need to, to do some work around this whole issue. New Jersey is a pretty culturally diverse uh, state, actually. We have a lot of uh, industry, which brings a lot of different people to us. So I began to research this issue, and I began to you know, specifically reach out to work with different um, cultural communities within the state of New Jersey. And one of the things that really came clear when I was doing the book, the, the cultural context of sexual pleasure and problems, we asked um, people from all over the world to, um, you know, write to us about the cases that they saw in their practices and, um, and how they dealt with them. First of all, psychology and sex therapy are certainly not worldwide, world, you know, practiced worldwide. But the other thing that really became clear was, you know, people do want to have, it's, you know, everywhere, people want to have uh, a good sex life. It's important to them. Or they want to be free not to, to have that sex life, if that's also important to them. They want to love who they want to love, and they want to express their sexuality, you know, to the person that they want to express it to. It seems to be given worldwide that men are really entitled to sexual pleasure. So there were lots of situations in which men could go for help, whether it was medication or therapy um, or even to spiritual or traditional healers for help to experience more pleasure sexually, to have erections last longer, to have orgasms last longer, to have them be more intense. Um, Viagra is marketed worldwide. The same is not true for women. There's not a universal expectation that women are entitled to sexual pleasure. So if women are seeking help in other areas of the world besides the Western world, they're really going because they have a sexual problem that interferes with either procreate their ability to get pregnant or because it interferes with male pleasure. And that's generally, you know, they would go to seek help for pain um, during vaginal intercourse. So that seems to be sort of a universal issue um, for, for women, um, but pleasure is not universal. Now, but given that, okay, given that, one of the things that is fundamental to me in my practice 
is as a, you know, born and raised in the Western world, um, you know, coming of age in the time of, you know, feminism, it's really hard for me to work with cultures where I feel that women aren't accorded the same value. And yet, what I have discovered in working with people from those cultures is actually what's really essential is how the woman is treated within the relationship that she's in. Is she accorded value in that relationship? And if so, it's often a delight to work with um, couples from different cultures. So in answer to the question, is there something universal? Everybody wants to have. A, you know, a good sex life. They want to be free to express their sexuality how they want to express it. Um, how that's practiced and whether they have the right to that does vary, I think, from culture to culture. And lest we think that in the West we are very superior, um, I would say that, you know, we have to also look at ourselves and see that, um, you know, we don't, we're, we're still far from that um, ideal of, um, you know, sort of parity between the genders and how free we are to express our own sexuality. So there's still a lot of shaming that does go on in, um, in our culture. Um, there's still a lot of sex in our culture that's not consensual um, that's going on. So we, we also do need to look at that before we think that, you know, we've got it, you know, we've got all the answers here. So let me just, you know, Jessica, if I can kind of tell you a little bit about a case that made me feel that I also suffered from this idea that we were culturally superior here and that um, as a woman also thinking that, you know, men in in Eastern cultures or in cultures where men are accorded a higher status, they've got it made. You know, they don't really have problems. One of the most common problems that I see in my practice is unconsummated marriage. That means the couple has not been able to have uh, vaginal intercourse. Sometimes they don't really have any sexual contact, but more often than not, they, they're having some kind of sexual pleasure back and forth, but they can't have intercourse. Sometimes the problem is he doesn't have an erection, but often the problem is that they are both fearful that sex will cause pain So, uh, to her. So what you see are really loving couples coming to therapy because they both are concerned about the pain that might be inflicted on the woman if, if they have intercourse. And this happens a lot in cultures where virginity and chastity are very highly valued. And women and men are told that, you know, sex is extraordinarily painful, you shouldn't do it, it's a really bad thing, um, and then all of a sudden you're married and, boom, you should be able to, you know, have sex right away. So one of the things, though, that I was struck with um, in many of the couples that I was dealing with in terms of the unconsummated marriage was this wasn't a problem that she was experiencing alone. It was a problem that they were both experiencing. And so um, in this one particular couple, you know, he was a very kind, caring, gentle man, and he was very, very worried about, you know, causing 
um, causing her pain. It was so important that he was involved in every step of the way in explaining to them, you know, um, how their bodies worked, how their bodies should work together in time, um, and how sex, you know, vaginal sex could be pleasurable and not painful if they were patient and took their time and built the arousal. Um, And that was something that they hadn't really heard about, but they were, um, you know, just delightful in terms of working with them and very eager to learn. And when it came time to say, you know, I think that it's time for you to try to have intercourse, you know, she was very ready. She was very interested and very eager. And I had to stop and do a little bit more work with him around, you know, that his pleasure would not be causing his wife pain. And once he, you know, was reasonably assured of that, he could move forward. And, you know, they ended up being able to have very pleasurable sexual experiences. So that was one case that, you know, really, really touched me quite a bit and really made me see that, you know, men often suffer in these cultures as well as women. Um, well, you, you mentioned the, certainly the messages that, uh, that the culture may give them, and uh, which we know, as you say, it, hap- it is a universal uh, issue. So we are given these messages around sex and, and even um, and, and how then with the help that you were able to give this couple, you were able to help them see that... Uh, they could find a path to having it more pleasurable and certainly achieving what they want, right? Right. You have to you have to work with the culture. For example, sure. you have to accept that you know extended okay. family is often very involved. Um, that they're going to consult with extended family. That the idea of pleasure and is something that sometimes is not highly stressed. That the the idea of having sex is really to have often in these cultures, it's to have children. It's, you know, to prove something. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we are meant to be together. Our relationship is blessed. Those types of things. Sure. But they're not... But yeah. And it sounds like, though, you know, as you said earlier, the male uh, derives the pleasure, but there's not as much emphasis on the woman finding pleasure. But, you know, it sounds certainly with your couple that she was more willing to engage and... Uh, and that she was able to to find uh, a, a pleasurable outcome, but I guess I'm the point ask that you, I want to make, though, Jessica, yeah, about yeah, that yeah. is that that's sort of the overarching cultural value. But our culture is also expressed in our intimate relationships, and certainly within mm. the intimate relationship, often, even though that's a value that that affects their sexual expression and makes mm-hmm. them fearful of pain and, you know, that that was not necessarily their value in their intimate relationship, that they, no. you know, and that created the difficulty, the disconnect between the larger culture and their own experience. Sure. Could you, we're, we're coming to the end. Is there something you would like for us to take away? And, and thank you for sharing your case but is there something you would like for the listeners to take away from this? I think, you know, to, to not make assumptions based on, you know, what we think of or perceive from a distance about a particular culture, but to, you know, really get to know and understand how people express and experience their own culture. Um, to be, you know, to, to maybe be a bit humble 
um, that we, you know, we in the West, we don't have, we're not superior, we don't have all the answers, and that people who express and have different relationships, both with their intimate partners and with their extended families and with their culture, um, you know, they're different. That's all. Uh, We're going to go away for break, and we'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. You are listening to The Sexual Voice with Jessica Ford. To reach our show today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to the sexual voice at jafordgroup.com. Now, back to the sexual voice. Welcome back. And I wanted to thank Catherine so much for taking the time uh, to record that segment uh, and sharing her knowledge and experience with cultural aspects with us. So, we're now have the wonderful guest of Leah Valian, and we're going to be taking a look back at the last four episodes. So Leah did such a great job with me last time, I thought uh, I've got to include her again. Leah, as just as a reminder, she's a registered clinical social worker with the Ontario College of Social Workers. She's a registered sex therapist with BESCO in Ontario. She's the director of Couple Health, which is a relationship and sex therapy counseling center serving Ayr, Stratford, Kitchener, Waterloo, and Ontario. And for more information about Leah, go to www.couplehealth.ca. So we're looking at the last four episodes, and those episodes were with Barry McCarthy, Sex, Desire, and Intimacy, Alexandra Solomon and Paul Joannes, mess that name up. And can you, can we outrun our genetic hardwiring and Lori Brato's mindfulness and Pepper Schwartz, the ebb and flow of sex and desire. So just taking a few of the nuggets out of those four, and I will do this briefly because Leah's got a well-prepared commentary here. Welcome. By the way, welcome, Leah. Thanks for joining me. Um, So, the nuggets. um, With Barry, it was looking at integrating intimacy and eroticism. And also reforming uh, how to form or the idea that relationship bond in this percentage of 
15 to 20 percent uh, the role of sex uh, to form this relationship bond. I found that interesting. Uh, with Alexander and Paul, uh, it was looking at, Alexander introduced me to a new phrase, digital immigrants uh, and digital natives. Uh, I thought that was, uh, because she says, people 20 years old and younger will not know love and desire without a handheld device. That is intriguing. And uh, also uh, this idea of women touching themselves and uh, the apprehension around that. And they're not, uh, they certainly give themselves a Brazilian uh, shaving their pubic hair or having it taken off with a, uh, by an esthetician, but they can't bring themselves to masturbate. Um, and with Pepper, there were so many things, but uh, she saw a kiss as a way of an apology. And basically, she was saying touch is the normal functioning event in a healthy relationship. So, um, But there was a common theme, and for me, that theme was this idea of a bonding touch. The word bonding was used a lot over those last four, four episodes. But the bonding touch was applied to personal as well as with the partner. So what did you get out of these last four episodes? Oh, that was Ms. a mouthful. <laughs> 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 and thanks for having me on again. It's a real pleasure to be back. The guests that you've been having on the show are so tremendous. You know, I think we could go into so many directions with their material. Um, but talking about bonding, um, touch. Touch is what really stood out for me and all the various um, great things that come from healthy touch. Um, you know, with Barry, you know, looking at the case study where the, the woman was wondering, is there a difference between love and sex? And, you know, Barry was talking to you about, um, I believe he said, the healthiest type of sexuality integrates both intimacy and eroticism. Um, so ideally, how can we integrate loving, intimate feelings with erotic sexual feelings? Um, but in talking more about the loving, intimate feelings, it, it did get back to touch over and over. And um, he used the, the other case of a man with premature ejaculation and how that should definitely not be the end of sexual activity for the couple. Um, and I got thinking about all the other guests, and I thought, you know, one of the great things about the um, the physical intimacy, even when it's non-sexual, you know, is the oxytocin, the love hormone, that cuddle hormone, all the great things that come from that. And that's one thing that happens when sexual activity is cut short. You know, it, it can contribute to a lack of intimacy. Um yeah, so so the importance of it being a team sport. But, um, you know, more about the touch that he was saying, I found quite fascinating. He referred to examples, um, I guess it was research of couples in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, and that they reported greater satisfaction with touch and sexuality than the younger folks did. Um, it just made me you know, think about touch and the power of it and that it can get better and better. And this oh. is all outside of sexual activity. It can be included, but it can, it doesn't have to be. No. 
Well, you know, I think that goes along with what uh, Peggy had said in, in her Peggy Kleinplatz and her research that uh, that it does open that. But uh, the others, I, I, I think Alexander Solomon also said the getting naked with you physically is less vulnerable than getting naked with you emotionally. That vulnerability, yeah, that was, uh, and this was, you know, what she's discovering in her work. Um, But it also brings me back to this, the mindfulness piece where uh, this personal intimacy and and being able to connect with yourself um, through this, the mind, body, and heart integration without judging yourself. Because I know in our conversation as we were preparing, you mentioned this idea of judgment that a lot of women, and and I said men, but a lot of women do judge themselves harshly and that kind of clouds their ability to be touched, right? You know, don't touch my fat tummy. You know, when you touch my tummy, it makes me feel, it reminds me how fat I am or something. And when Lori Bratto was speaking about mindfulness, you know, and, and, you know, the importance of the mind-body-heart integration without judgment, you know, if um, an individual can really internalize that, they start to accept themselves. That includes their body. And that can be quite a challenge for us. I, I, you know, I admit it's been a lifelong journey for myself. But it does get better if you focus on it. And the more you can love and accept yourself, including your body, the more open to pleasure a person can become. So often, you know, we see it in younger men and women, I agree, um, this tendency to not accept themselves as they are, it it actually stands as an obstacle because how can you happily invite someone to partake in physical pleasure with yourself when you've got that obstacle and you're feeling rather unworthy, not good enough, perhaps not attractive enough, and maybe even, you know, totally oblivious to what you find fun and pleasurable for yourself. Well, um, uh, it definitely, you know, brought back what Peggy Kleinplatz was talking about in her work on optimal sex, you know, where the, I believe she was saying the challenge was how do I be in my own experience fully aware as well as at the very same time being aware with another in their experience. Kind of like well, I, dancing a I, solo and how do they say, you know, dancing... Uh, a solo and, um, you know, as a couple at the same time. There's a lot going on. There is. I, it, the piece to kind of looking at Pepper's work uh, and, and her contribution to the show, you know, she, again, she, she talked about touch being the connector or even she referred to it a couple of times as the peace offering, <laughs> you know, that reaching out to touch, um to, you know, hopefully draw the one near, uh, then going back to this concept of vulnerability. You know, I, I can get naked with you, I can have sex with you maybe, but I really can't connect with you on an emotional level. And because that's really scary for me. So reaching out, and she talked about when they were maybe having a disagreement, or uh, and this is Pepper's work, um, that that reaching out is a real risk, you know, to be vulnerable. Will the person receive it? You know, I want to sure. connect with you. I want to repair, right? 
Right. But, uh, but, but there's so many meanings to this idea of touch, physical oh, touch. Oh, there are. And I think I, I would be um, surprised if you didn't see the same thing with clients that I see so often is they've come to a point in the relationship where giving touch is so vulnerable, but it all, maybe because it carries such a huge message. So if there's been something particularly hurtful, you know, possibly even an affair, um, you know, if I was to touch my partner, am I not sending the message that that was okay? Or even the, you know, less major issues, um, touching is withheld, you know, so often. And by the time they come into the office, perhaps they've not been holding hands. They don't particularly make eye contact very much. Um, if they are sexually active still, it could be that it's missing something. Um, so I, I see it as very important that we're able to help them to make that reconnection as quickly as possible. No, I would agree. Even and, and in the I, office, you know, having them touch hands, you know. The research mm-hmm. says that if people are holding hands as they're talking about something difficult, the conversation's going to go in a much more positive direction. I think that goes back to this concept of healing. I think, I, you know, you and I, again, were talking about the, the benefits of healing touch, that it can actually heal the emotional wounds. And um, it, again... W- you know, you have to say, are they ready for it? But sometimes, I often refer to myself as this tugboat, sometimes nudging them forward a little bit, you know, to begin. And, and I like the idea of integrating this in the office. So maybe they can do it, even though they often say, oh, I feel awkward, you know, <laughs> right, doing it. Um, and maybe it's less threatening, you know. Okay. If the therapist yep. prescribed, I must do this, so I have to be cooperative, yeah. And then, you know, we, 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 we have ice. one we have one more minute. Okay, thanks. <laughs> I know. So I, I yeah, I this I is I think not... we wanted to talk a, a little bit more about the healing touch and um is it all right yeah. if I explain a little quickly about the cuddle party? Uh, you have literally just one minute. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. um these days there's actually groups of people that get together to have cuddle parties where it's a totally consensual and non-sexual event with many, many rules and boundaries. The first half of the class mm-hmm. is all about that. And it's just very interesting that we're getting so creative now about different ways that we can be touched. Sure. No. And I think you talked about the O. You know, the, oh, they're on. If you go to cuddleparty.com, yeah. oxytocin mm-hmm. is mentioned. Yeah. As um, it's not yeah. the the O, the big O is not about orgasm. It's oxytocin. Ah, and so, there's a fascinating blog on there. Okay, Leah, thank you. I'm sorry we had to make this so abbreviated, but uh, like you said, we've had some great speakers, and this topic today I think had some real relevance with race and culture, especially with what's happening here in my neck of the woods. So uh, just very quickly, coming up next week, the topic of that episode is I Was Robbed, Sexual Abuse and the Loss of Sexual Self. We have two very distinguished guest speakers, Wendy Maltz and Mike Liu. Uh, There will be a bit of a military focus on that show as well. And I want to thank all of you for joining me today and this wonderful discussion we had with Herbert Samuels and Catherine Hall and, of course, my good friend, 
and pal, Leah Valian. Thank you so much, Leah. And uh, please continue to contact me with Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you for listening. And remember, health, healthy sex begins with you. Join me next Friday, and we'll talk and explore some more. Thank you for joining Jessica and her guests today on The Sexual Voice. Please tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The weekend is here. Enjoy your sexual self, and please join us here next Friday. 